We hear from God's word again, as we have been doing these Lord's Day mornings for this past month from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, and this morning we'll be reading verses, or all of chapter 3, and then through verse 8 of chapter 4. Familiar words becoming more and more familiar to us, but each time we read God's word, we see anew another truth that God would have us see, even in this passage as well. So pray that uh, familiarity will not uh, build uh, some sort of uh, disdain or boredom from this passage, but will indeed help us to even search deeper into the scriptures, the truth that God has for us. 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, Reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. But the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As far as the reading of God's word, let's again bow in prayer. Father, good God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God who is knowable, that you have revealed yourself in your word. Father, we live in times such as these we've read about, and we pray that you would find us faithful, that we would be a remnant that loves your word, that loves your commands, that delights in living according to your plan for our lives, Lord. But also we pray that you'd fill our hearts with compassion. We live in a broken world and a time where Christ is so needed. So help us, Lord, to reach out and to be faithful witnesses for your name's sake. Amen. And amen. Three things from this passage and others this morning. Uh, Paul's words, first of all. Paul's weapon, second. Third, Paul's warning. So Paul's words, Paul's weapon, and Paul's warning. Paul uses for us the word fight. Chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. Paul had told Timothy this once before. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul in verses 11 and 12 had given to Timothy these words. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. So the question this morning is, what does Paul mean by that? What does Paul mean when he instructs Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith? When he himself says now as he closes out his life or as he sees his life coming to an end, I have fought the good fight. Well, first of all, we we could say there are many fights we could get involved in. There are many places in which we could become involved in fights. But Paul doesn't say, I have fought fights. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. Because you see, there is but one good fight for you and I to be engaged in. And that is the fight for the truth of God's word. Now, Paul understands this in two ways. When Paul says, I have fought the good fight, first of all, we have to understand that by that, Paul means he has fought the good fight in the struggle of his inner man. This is not only a fight exterior, this is a fight inside of ourselves. There is a war that is being raged within our members. There is a war in which sin, Satan, desires to still grab hold of us, even as believers in Jesus Christ. That fight needs to be fought. 
If we think the warfare is only out there, if we think the fight is only out there, we have not fought the good fight. The good fight involves not only that which is happening within us, but that which is true and present in the world as well. Go back with me to, keep your finger here, go back with me to the book of Romans chapter 7 where Paul describes this so clearly, right? This struggle with inside of his own being where sin desires over and over and over and over and over again. And that sin needs to be fought against. There is a struggle Indeed, Paul uses the terminology of there is a war taking place within here. I fear in this time of age in which we live, we're thinking too much of the battle without and not the battle within. And we have lost. We have lost much of the battle out there because we're not engaged in the battle in our own hearts. We decry sin out there, but we allow sin to reign in here. The good fight that Paul encourages Timothy and you and I to be engaged in. The Paul, the fight, the good fight that Paul says he has indeed engaged in is the fight in our inner being. Listen to Paul, verse 13, Romans 7. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me. Through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if, you, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. I agree with the word. I agree with God's truth that it is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war. Understand that. Paul has a raging war within him. And so do you and I. Another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, 
But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Fight the good fight of the faith. In here. We need to do battle with the sin that is within. But Paul's words, when he says, I have fought the good fight, it's not only that internal struggle. It's an external struggle as well. It's a struggle against the world. It's a struggle against the heretic. It is a struggle against the source of both, which is the devil himself. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, I'll pick it up at verse 10. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Those schemes of the devil are not just internal. Those schemes of the devil are in the world. And we need to put on the whole armor of God. We need to be engaged in the spiritual battle of this world. See, what ends up happening is is we become one of two people. We either think the battle is all exterior and never deal with the sin that is within, or all we deal with is the sin that is within And never deal with the battle that's out there in the world. Understand that in Paul you have both. Yes, he's a man wrestling with sin internally. But he is also a man who is confronting sin in this world. We need to be both. It's not one or the other. It is both and. The struggle of the good fight that we are called to. It's a struggle against sin in our hearts. But if sin is the horrendous thing we believe it is, then when that sin is prevalent in our world and in our society, we must wage war against it as well. We must do spiritual battle with our own sinful desires and passions, as well as dealing with the sin that is prevalent in this world. Paul's word. Secondly, Paul's weapon. How do we fight this fight? Well, I'll give you two answers. A, if you're taking the notes, is the implicit B is the explicit. The implicit is this. It's what we've been dealing with in Timothy, right? Timothy chapters three and four. What is Paul talking about? What is the central theme? It is indeed the word of God. Paul is saying, I have fought the fight. How did Paul fight the fight? When he comes to chapter four, seven. I have fought the good fight. How? How did Paul fight the good fight? Well, he's told us. Now, he didn't 
spell it out explicitly. He didn't write a verse. He didn't give A, B, C. But he's told us, hasn't he? Right? People will be, what will things be like in the latter days? Why? Because they oppose the truth. What is the truth? All scripture is breathed out by God. God's word. There'll be rebellion like there was with Janice and Jamboree's against God's truth. We need to stand against that. There will be people who no longer want to hear God's truth, but will want have itching ears to hear what their sinful souls and hearts desire. What do they need? God's truth. Preach the word, Timothy. See, the whole thing is implicitly telling us To fight the good fight, you need to fight that battle with not a weapon of war. But with the word of God. This is our weapon. We do not stockpile weapons and ammunitions to fight the good fight of the faith. You might be fighting But you're not fighting the good fight. The good fight is with the word of God. But you see, we live in a day in society where we go, well, I don't think that is enough. We so doubt God's word. We think we have a better chance of fighting against this world with the weapons of man, with the horses and chariots of man than we do with God's own truth. This is our weapon. Paul implicitly is telling us that through these chapters. But he also tells us that explicitly, doesn't he? If we're back at Ephesians chapter 6, we're we're told it directly, are we not? This isn't a question. This isn't some sort of just mere extrapolation of pieces of here and there. Chapter 6, stand therefore, verse 10 having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is explicitly the word of God. What is the sword of the spirit? Tell me, what is the... Sword of the Spirit. Say it. What is the sword of the Spirit? Understand that truth. That if we are seeking to wage a war against sin in our own hearts, against sin in this world, with any other weapon, we are going to fail. The weapon that we have, that we have been given by God, is the word of God. This is not a question. This is not something we go, well, yeah, but maybe we need this too. No. 
As I read this passage, it appears that the only offensive weapon that we are given is the sword. It's not we're given a sword and a spear. Yeah, use the word of God, but then you really need the spear too. You need this other stuff. No, all you need is the sword, the word of God. This is what God desires for his church, for you and I as believers to go out and to fight the good fight of the faith with. And my friends, it is the only battle that is worth fighting. Because it's the only battle that has eternal significance. The word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, 12. You can take note of it. You can look it up. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. It's actually sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Want to do battle with the sin in your heart? The sin in your own life? You want to wage the good fight? Take up the sword of the Spirit that pierces our own hearts. Want to wage war, the good fight against the sin of this world and society? Take up this word of God. It's sharper than any man-made weapon. It's able to accomplish more. And no creature, no creature can run from the truth of God's word. What an amazing blessing God has given to us as the church and to us as individuals. But thirdly, going back to Timothy, Paul is issuing to us a warning, is he not? He's warning us about false teaching. He's warning us about false doctrine. He's warning us about false teachers. Let me give you four passages. Okay, you can look them up this afternoon. 2 Timothy 3, 4. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. And 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. What do we find? We find false teaching being confronted. How? With truth. With the word of God. See when we look into 2 Timothy 3 and 4. We've read this you know multiple times now. Right? When, when it comes to those sections. Where, where there are those who are, who are leading and teaching and going astray. 
What is Paul always coming back to? The word. How do you deal with false doctrine? How do you deal with false teaching? How do you deal with false teachers? You confront them with the truth of God's word. It is sad that so often Christians take up the tactics of this world to engage the world in battle. They use the language of the world. They use the attitude of the world. They use the demeanor of the world. They use the temper of this world. You're not fighting the good fight. This is all you need. It speaks for itself. This is all that needs to be said. God's truth. Today is October 25. Come this Saturday, October 31, 1517, marking the beginning of the Reformation. Men like John Huss, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Hendrick Zwingli, John Knox, are seeking to lead a reformation against the false teachers, the false doctrine of their day and of their age. What are they doing? Are they getting together armies? No. Are they collecting man's physical weapons? No. They're taking the word of God and directing people's attention to the truth of God's word. How does God grip Martin Luther's heart? Through a text of scripture, the just are saved by faith. The reformation is a reformation of many things, but ultimately it is a reformation that takes us back to the word of God. And the battle those men fought was over the word of God. They died for the word of God. It is the good fight. They heard the word of God call them in their day, in their age, to fight the good fight. And oh, how Luther, oh, how Luther waged against that devil in his own heart. Oh, how he waged that battle against the sins of his own soul. My brothers and sisters in Christ, he didn't stop there. That battle that he saw waged in his own heart, he saw being waged in the world. And when told to stand down, said, I will not. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand where? On God's truth. Not the teachings of man, not the false teachings of a church, but on the truth of God's word. How many of you were members of Little Farms 1997? If you were a member of Little Farms, 
1997. Just stand up for a minute. 1997. All right. I want you to take note. Okay? You may sit down. Thank you. Why do I call attention to 1997? Because in 1997, we did more than talk about this. See, there's a lot of times when there's a lot of talk, a lot of chatter about this, but when it really comes down to the end, ah, people cave, people give in. People say, oh, it's not worth the fight. It's not worth the battle. In 1997, the members of Little Farms Chapel decided enough was enough. The battle was not about women in office. The battle was not about homosexuality. The battle was not about abortion. The battle was not even about creation. The battle was this. Does it mean what it says? And those folks who stood were those who said, no, we stand upon this truth. We didn't know what that was going to mean. We didn't know what that was going to cost us. We didn't know what difficulties that was going to bring. We didn't know what struggles that meant was coming. But what we did know is that God is true to his promises. And if we take a stand upon the truth of God's word, God will bless. God will bless. We have fought that fight. This isn't just talk. This isn't just words. Some of you probably still deal. Some of those who stood probably still deal. Every once in a while with a little snarky comment now or then at a family gathering or with a group of friends. About our decision to leave the Christian Reformed Church and to join a denomination that we believed stood firmly upon the truth of God's word. Might have cost some folks jobs, some folks opportunities. It is a fight. And in a fight, in a battle, there is persecution, there is suffering, there are difficulties. Folks, in a few minutes when we dismiss, you get to go to the gym, you get to pick up a cupcake in honor of pastor's appreciation. Folks, thank you. That's really nice of you. I do appreciate it. But folks, today, today, appreciate the people of this congregation who stood up and said, no, we're going to stand upon the truth of God's word. We're going to fight the good fight. We're not going to engage in name calling. We're not going to write tons and tons of articles demeaning 
the character and person of other people. We're just going to say, this is what God says. This is what it means. This is the truth. And you mark, you mark, my friends, if you read, if you see, if you understand what is going on. The fact that that denomination no longer stands for that truth where they are today. This is closed. What's popular opinion? Let's make our decisions based upon that. Thank God. Thank God for those back in 1997, saints now in glory, saints still here who stood and said, no, we stand upon the truth of God's word. It is now 23 years since that event. Thankfully, by God's grace, we're still part of a faithful denomination. But we see all around us the devastation. And if we look in the mirror, we see the devastation in our own hearts that when we don't fight the fight, what happens? We are called. We are called to be the church of Jesus Christ that stands upon the truth in this day, in this age. Regardless of how strong the oppositional views may become and the pressures that come upon us, we stand upon the truth of God's word. So help us God. But there was another man who fought that fight. A man by the name of J. Gresham Machen. Back in 1923. He wrote this little book. It's called Christianity and Liberalism. It's one of those that I'd say you ought to read. You ought to read because it's, it's, it's so true of every age, of every society. But he closes with these words. It's a rather long quote, but I think I can get it done. Yet there is in the Christian life no room for despair. Only our hopefulness should not be founded on the sand. It should be founded not upon a blind ignorance of the danger, <coughs> but solely upon the precious promises of God. Laymen as well as ministers should return in these trying days with new earnestness to the study of the word of God. If the word of God be heeded, the Christian battle will be fought both with love and with faithfulness. Party passions and personal animosities will be put away. But on the other hand, even angels from heaven will be rejected if they preach a gospel different from the blessed gospel of the cross. Every man must decide upon which side he will stand. God grant that we may decide aright. What the immediate future may bring, we cannot presume to say. The final result, though, is indeed clear. God has not deserted his church. 
He has brought her through even darker hours than those which try our courage now. Yet the darkest hour has always come before the dawn. We have today the entrance of paganism into the church in the name of Christianity. But in the second century, a similar battle was fought and won. From, one, from another point of view, modern liberalism is like the legalism of the Middle Ages with its dependence upon the merit of man. And another reformation in God's time will come. But meanwhile, our souls are tried. We can only try to do our duty in humility and in sole reliance upon the Savior who brought, bought us with his blood. The future is in God's hands and we do not know the means that he will use in the accomplishment of his will. It may be that the present evangelical ch churches will face the facts and regain their integrity while yet there is time. If that solution is to be adopted, there is no time to lose since the forces opposed to the gospel are now almost in, always in control. It is impossible that the existing, it is possible, excuse me, that the existing churches may be given over altogether to naturalism, that men may then see that the fundamental needs of the souls are to be satisfied not inside but outside of the existing churches, and that thus new Christian groups may be formed. But whatever solution there may be, one thing is clear. There must be somewhere groups of redeemed men and women who can gather together humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks to him for his unspeakable gift and to worship the Father through him. Such groups alone can satisfy the needs of the soul. At the present time, there is one longing of the human heart which is often forgotten. It is the deep, pathetic longing of the Christian for fellowship with his brethren. One hears much if it is true about Christian union and harmony and cooperation. But the union that is meant is often a union with the world against the Lord. Or at best a forced union of machinery and tyrannical committed committees. How different is the true unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Sometimes it is true the longing for Christian fellowship is satisfied. There are congregations even in the present age of conflict that are really gathered around the table of the crucified Lord. There are pastors that are pastors indeed. But such congregations in many cities are difficult to find. Weary with the conflicts with the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin, such as the sermon. And then perhaps the service is closed by one of those hymns breathing out the angry passions of 1861, which are to be found in the back portion of hymnals. Thus the warfare of the world has entered even into the house of God. And sad indeed is the heart of the man who has come seeking peace. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Christ's name 
to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation, race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, then it is the house of God and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. Pray that we might always be such a house of God. Amen? Amen. Father, we live in a world that is desperate. Desperate for truth. We have the truth. Not because we're better than anybody else, but because you've given us the truth. You've given us your word. Father, with that word, with that sword of the Spirit, may we deal with the ever-present sin in our own hearts and in our own minds. But Father, with that sword of the Spirit, may we also do battle in this age, in this society, in our circumstances, for the glory, for the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also, but also out of love for our fellow man, that, Father, they might still hear the glorious message of the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, you were pleased to raise up men in that New Testament era, to continue to preach the gospel of truth. You were pleased in the time of the Reformation to raise up men to proclaim the glorious truth of the cross. You were pleased in the early 1900s to raise up men to preach the glorious truth of Christ. Father, raise up your people today. Raise up men who will preach Christ crucified. Raise up churches established upon the truth of your word. Raise up old men and maidens, young men and mothers and grandmothers to stand firmly upon your truth. In Christ's name, God's people say, amen.